Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Today's guest is Dustin Lance Black, an author, filmmaker, and social activist known for writing the Academy Award-winning screenplay of the Harvey Milk biopic, Milk and for his part in overturning California's discriminatory Proposition 8. His heartfelt, deeply personal memoir, Mama's Boy, explores how a mother and son built bridges across great cultural divides and how our stories hold the power to heal. Now please join book editor Anna Kaufman in conversation with Dustin Lance Black. Lance, it's so nice to see you. I this We worked together for ages and I'm not sure if we ever met face to face. I I don't think I've ever ever seen you face to face. It was all phone calls and a lot of laughing on phone calls. So I feel like I know you well. But, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, that's why I'm sort of stuttering over it. It's like we must have met, but I guess um, technically this is the most face to face we've been. So thank you, the wonders of technology during a pandemic. <laughs> I know. Finally, thanks to to Chrome, we've we've somehow conquered the Atlantic Ocean and can see. Yay. So this is kind of a loaded question these days, but uh, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm doing all right. I I was in a writing phase, not a production phase. So writing phase is honestly like being in lockdown anyway. I mean, so it's kind of like that whatever that six month or nine month period is where I try to get everything I need written written. Um, except now I hear the pitter patter of my son's feet uh, upstairs. I hear my husband working out, um, which sometimes is annoying, but it's it, the rewards come in all the meals somehow miraculously being prepared. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's it's like a normal writing schedule, but a little more familial. Um, and but then, yes, you know, I, of course, I uh, every now and then um reality hits and i i understand that we're in the middle of something quite serious and and certainly then over the past um couple of weeks watching what's happened uh in my home country in the united states is heartbreaking infuriating uh and i do often wish i could get on a plane and march with my brothers and sisters and neighbors back home yeah um, I was going to try to lead into some of the heavier stuff, um, because I think what's so remarkable about this book is that it's both so personal and then about how the personal is political. Um, but since you mentioned it, I'm wondering, do you think that there are um, any lessons that um, readers could take away from Mom's Boy um, that would apply to what's going on right now? Well, absolutely. I I think I think there are lessons in Mama's Boy, though the polit the the politics in Mama's Boy center mostly around LGBTQ issues and women's equality issues. Um, but certainly, it lays out one of the roadmaps to creating change, and that is how do you have the conversations with people who you believe think differently than you do on that subject? And is it actually possible in our divided times to come to an understanding, to find common ground? 
And this book, based on my experiences, says yes, absolutely. But what we tend to get wrong is we have our political conversations sound as much like the 24-hour news channels as possible. We want to be right. We want to be right on the facts. We want to be right on the law. We want to be right on the science. And I get that because I'm a nerd when it comes to the law and facts and science. But guess what? They aren't the best way to argue your case if you want to create change. To create change, and you see this throughout history with our greatest change makers, what you ought to come with, loaded with, is your own personal story about your family, yourself, your friends, your neighbors, your past, your hopes, your dreams. Understanding that if you're going to change a mind, you have to first change a heart. That that's the direction that change goes. It goes from hearts to minds, not the other way around. Minds, in fact, tend to like to do battle. And so as soon as you tell another mind that they're wrong, they just want to prove they're right. Whereas hearts are a little bit better at listening and, and a little bit better at finding the common ground, finding the similarities and stories, even when people are very, very different. So I would say, um, and I'm actually seeing a good bit of it, um, I would say to those marching in the United States right now for change, much needed change, change that should have come a very, very long time ago, uh, to fulfill the promises of our country that have gone unfulfilled, to come with story. Tell the story of how being treated uh, differently than your neighbors because of the color of your skin has affected you and your family. Tell me the story. Um, and, and I guarantee you that you'll change some hearts, not all. And if you change some hearts, you'll change some minds. And I do believe, and you can call me an optimist, you can call me naive, all the greats when it comes to change have been called those things, um, but that I believe that through powerfully told personal story, even in these darkest of days, we can change enough hearts and change enough minds that things like equality can even pass at the ballot box. I believe that. It's just time for us to get to it and to stop buying into the lie that I think is uh, perpetuated in the media these days, no matter your political stripes, that lie is that politics is the highest plane of existence. And yes, politics is important, and politics is the roadmap to how we're treated, to how our laws are built. But if we want to change that, if we want to change that, you have to change the hearts that change the minds that can change the law. And I believe we're almost, I believe we're getting closer to that. Gosh, I hope you're right. <laughs> um, well, it's, it, I, I will say you just hit on a hope is important. Uh, hope is fuel for change. But it, hope detached from action is worthless. And so I, I want people to have hope. We need people visualizing what a better, more equal f future looks like. But then, yes, it has to be attached to action. And if people are listening right now and saying, well, this all sounds sort of soft and squishy. No, it's not. It's really hard. It's hard to get to that most powerful stage there is for change in the world. And I say that's the dining room table. And to sit there with people who absolutely disagree with you on things that are meaningful to you. And then in that setting, to share your heart openly, that takes real courage. 
It takes real courage for good politicians to get up on stage and to share personal stories from their lecterns. But that's the only way to do it. So it isn't soft, just because we're talking about the heart. It takes great courage. And that's what I learned from my mother. I learned from my mother that that combination of courage and curiosity can create change. It can build bridges. And in the book, in the last third of it, as you well know, I challenged myself to go the other direction because I'm a progressive guy. Could I go home to my very conservative family in Texas or back to my roots in Salt Lake City, Utah, in the Mormon church and use this idea that stories can create change and build bridges to see if I could find common ground where these days folks say there's none to be found. And if you read the book, I think you'll see that not always, and not always in the way we hope, but that change can be created. Built bridges can be built. We are not as permanently divided as people would have you believe. For people who maybe haven't read the book yet, can you talk a little bit about your personal story and specifically how that relates to your mother, who is one of my favorite, I guess she's a character now, but one of my favorite people I've ever encountered um, in a book? Well, she was a character. I mean, she was a character. Um, you know, the short version for people who haven't read it yet, and, and, and another reason it might be worth picking the book up, uh, is that my mother's story began in Lake Providence, Louisiana, the poorest city in the country, according to CNN. Uh, and, and there, in Lake Providence, Louisiana, in 1950, she contracted polio an epidemic that was sweeping through the country um, that was taking lives. You know, most people didn't even didn't know they had it, but that 5% who got it would lose the use of limbs. They would lose the ability to move in many cases, and many, many would die. That one season after my mother contracted polio, 5,000 in just her area would die and tens of thousands more would die uh, over the next year. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it should, because we're going through it now. And I didn't, couldn't have known that we'd be facing something so similar now. But I do think it's worth a read. I think it's worth a read because this book shows you loud and clear that a woman who at two years old was put into an iron lung, who grew up in children's hospitals, whose body was covered in scars from surgeries that never helped her regain the ability to move, that a plague didn't just rob her of things. It had gifts. It came with silver linings. And one of the things it gave my mom in return for her ability to move was strength and courage and curiosity. And with those, you watched how, though every doctor and nurse was saying, these are all the things you'll never, ever be able to do. You'll never be able to finish school. You'll never go to the prom. You'll never be able to go to college and have a real job. You certainly will not fall in love, get married, and have children. It was biologically impossible, according to them. Well, the fact that you're hearing my voice right now means my mother was determined to prove them wrong. That she did fall in love. She did get married, in fact, a couple of times before she got it right. And she had three kids. And not only that, and I'll cut to the chase, but by the time she retired, she was running 
the laboratory in the most esteemed government hospital there is, Walter Reed Army Medical, where the president, as she would say, would go for care. So there is a story of a woman who, with great courage, and I do believe it was an epidemic that helped her find that courage. And so I, I, for some people reading it now, I think, and I've heard this a lot lately, um, they find it inspiring that there's going to be something on the other side of this and that perhaps it'll be something hopeful. You know, But the book doesn't stop there. The book then ventures into, well, what comes of that courage and curiosity that she started to find in 1950? What could she do with it today in a time that's so politically divided, in a time where political divides are separating families, tearing apart communities and neighborhoods, states and a country, and to watch how powerful that combination of courage and curiosity was in healing our own family and how thankfully I learned those lessons from my mom and had the opportunities to put that combination to good use to try and change the laws of the land to make lives better for LGBTQ people in America. That's the long and short of the book. I'm not sure if that's a good description, Anna. You, you tell me. No, that's a wonderful description of the book. Um, I kind of want to talk about your process a little bit more because there's so many interesting elements here and you're saying so, you think so much of a vehicle of change is story and there's amazing family stories that make up this book. How for you did you go about changing, transforming memories into stories, stories into narrative, into a book? How do you assemble those pieces Gosh, you've done this before. You know exactly what to ask. The uh, it is hard. Memoir is hard. I mean, I I had a I had a little bit of a leg up because I've done biography, um, and I've I've done some I've written some films uh, where many of the the real life folks are still around, and they would share their memories. And one of the things I learned early on, this is you know twenty years ago now in the research process, is that memory is not solid at all. Memory is like clay and it changes over time. And so if you're trying to get to the truth of what happened, you better have more than one source. You better ask a lot of questions um, and you better look for supporting documentation. I do that in my movies. Um, And so I decided I was going to do that uh, to my own story. And so that meant not only interviewing everyone who's still around in my family who were firsthand witnesses to what went on, but then pairing them up so that then they would then on the second go around telling me their version of the story, have someone there to help correct the record. And it's just a it's a trick I've used in filmmaking for some time where if you have two people in a room who both experience the same thing, if you ask them separately what happened, you'll get two very different stories. If you ask them together, they start to usually pay a little closer attention to their memory. <laughs> and and if some, if some part of the memory has become calcified, something that's kind of fictional, um, you know, and we're Southern, our family, so a lot, there's a lot of lore. Uh, and, uh, and so um, having two people in the room meant that they could correct each other. And it usually was pretty funny. Um, and, and, and then I and then it was it was some of it was quite difficult because uh, listen it's a it's a bit of a you know uh, uh, I don't want to ruin the book 
for people, but if you don't know, I don't have my mother around anymore. And so I had to reconstruct a lot. And there were a lot of questions that I just never asked um, because I lost her in a, in a sudden way. And so, um, so then it was digging through old boxes, files, cabinets, things that my mother had saved. Thankfully, she was very sentimental and a pack rat. Um, and I found a lot of things that uh, were incredibly helpful, but then a lot of things that, well, you know, a lot of kids don't ever find out about their parents. You know, the old letters, the old love letters she wrote as a teenage girl to the priest in the children's hospital who she wanted to convince to leave the priesthood to marry her at 13 years old. I mean, it was a lot. Her golden book of boys, all of the little pictures of the boys she had crushes on that she would save in this little tiny wallet-sized uh, photo collection book. And uh, and they were cute. She had great taste. And... um you know, and uh, and then and then and then things that are are real tre- historic treasures, like her her journal, which is like a signature book. Uh, so she would write in it, but also the other kids in the ward would write in it. From Warm Springs, Georgia, the polio hospital that President Roosevelt built, and and she she wrote in that book and had her you know uh, ward mates write in that book year after year after year after year, and you can kind of watch these kids grow up in that book. She comes alive just so fully on the page. I feel like I knew her. So it's an amazing tribute to her. Um, Did the process of writing the book and doing everything you just said, interviewing people, did that end up changing anything for you, changing any of your relationships? I'm very fascinated in the way in which writing a memoir, which is obviously part of, then becomes part of your life and affects your life. I mean, it did. I would say the most, the, the thing that changed the most is my relationship with my family and with certain people in the Mormon church. Because in order to do it right and to get it right, I had to reconnect. And, you know, part of the story, the last third of the book, is about that reconnection. But beyond just what happened was also just the constant communication, all the emails and the phone calls and the, you know, the Skypes and to just get closer to the truth or when there was a missing piece. And, you know, it was just it was incredibly lovely to reconnect with my entire good old Southern family, um, regardless of who they voted for. Um, you know, and also illuminating to reconnect with members of the Mormon Church and and members of the Mormon Church in leadership in Salt Lake City. I never thought I would reconnect with them, and I certainly never thought that I would surprisingly find some warmth there, and and uh, understand that there are parts of having been a Mormon kid that I miss. Um, you know, I don't miss the misogyny. I don't miss the homophobia. Um, but there are other things that I do miss. Um, and so that was, that was surprising. Um, but you know, anything we do changes us. And, and as, as you well know, uh, I, I wanted to get it right. I was terrified I was getting it wrong. Um, and I, and I, I think I, I kept, I, I really had to depend on you. Uh, to keep me on the rails and to keep me moving forward. Because there were days I would hit send on a draft and wait until I heard back, and I was just sure that I would never hear from you again, that you would go, holy cow, this is the worst. 
<laughs> so when I would finally hear your voice and hear the laughter and tears, I would I would keep going. Um, but it is an act of bravery to dig backward, and and I, I couldn't have done it without you. Thank you, and I also want to just thank Tim O'Connell, who is the other even primary editor on this book and is not on this call, but I feel like I need to give credit where credit is due, so I'm not just saying, like, thank you. Um, yeah, you and Tim. Yeah. You, you, were my, you were my two. Um, yeah, for sure. Shout out to Tim. But he would always, he and I were talking so much that I always thought, and he's great. I mean, truly great. Uh, but, you know, we were both so close to it. I just, I wondered, well, neither of us really are terrifically objective anymore. So I was always kind of listening for you. Well, what does Anna think? Well, yeah, but what does Anna think? I think that's the first time ever anyone has ever been like, because you're really objective. No, but I, I think you're, you had the, um, you knew what you were doing more than you thought. And I think when you trusted your instincts, they were good instincts. Um, I also found it just thematically and fascinating and then just generally wonderful. Over the course of writing this book, you yourself became a father. Um, and um, how do you think that sort of changed your perspective on family and politics or do you think it just enhanced what your mom already taught you well it's it it actually was frustrating i have to say because i um i would be writing uh and in fact i was really in the midst of the work the research was done and i was writing at this point when our son was born and so he'd be there next to me napping that's when i would get to write um, but most of the time, I was running around like crazy, just trying to figure out how to be a dad. What do I need to do? How warm does the milk need to be? I hope I don't hurt this precious little thing. I don't want to ruin it. And it meant, first of all, my respect for my mother went through the roof. Because there I am, a perfectly able um, guy, all my limbs working, um, uh, and I'm struggling I was struggling, and I thought, how could a paralyzed, from the chest down, a paralyzed woman raising three children on her own, a two-year-old, a six-year-old, and a ten-year-old, how did she do it? And I just mean the practical things. Like how, if you have a, a, two, a six-year-old running around like mad and a two-year-old throwing a fit, like how do you handle that? How do you move these children from one room to the other? How do you do changes? I just don't know. I don't remember how she did it. And there's no one around, and if you read the book, you know why, uh, who, who was there to witness it. So, so actually, I was just incredibly frustrated. I have all these questions now that I want to ask her, and I'll never know the answers to them, and it drives me insane. Yeah. Well, it's nice. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say to that. I, f I feel... It's, it's always hard when, when someone's gone and, and you have all these things that you realize you wish that you could ask them. I've been feeling that a lot with all the current circumstances. Um, questions yeah. that you want to be able to throw back. And, um, you know, I, I guess all you can do is pass on the, the wisdom that you have for the next generation. And I think you've been doing that in a number of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'll, I try my, I'm trying my best. Um, but gosh, it would be so, you know, now everyone always asks that question. Like if, if you could only, if you could have, you know, a meal with one person living or dead and you go, oh, well, who, well now it's like clear cut. I'm like my mom, but get, put her in the room. I, I need to know. 
I need to know. Um, well, on the br- the bright spot is at least during this, I very much enjoyed getting to see um, occasional social media updates of you and your adorable son and your lovely husband. You seem to be productive writing your King Lear during this, whereas I'm just <laughs> watching episodes yeah. of Netflix endlessly. Really. I, I mean, you know, writers write, and I, I think um, I, uh, I, you know, I'm also working on, um, I'm working on film and TV stuff right now. I'm not doing another book. I wouldn't do that without you. Um, the, uh, but, you know, one of, the, one of the projects I'm working on, and I've been working on for about six years now, is on um, Bayard Rustin. And so it has actually been really nice to to be able to talk with the real life folks who helped build the march on washington with byard uh to draw inspiration and um see the events going on right now through their eyes people who have been in the civil rights movement um for a very long time um so in in some ways it's been helpful uh to to continue to understand what's going on now through the lens of people who were fighting back in 1960, 62, 63, 64, um, to give it some perspective. So it's, um, there's that. Um, but yeah, I, I try, I'm trying to keep writing. It's busy. It's a busy time, you know, for film and TV folks. It is the, in, in the, in the great depression, there's a story. I don't know if it's true. I haven't researched it, but if you were, if you were, you know, going around town and you saw a giant line of people, it was one of two things. They were either in a bread line or in a line to see a Charlie Chaplin film. And uh, people, people in these times want to step into another world for a while. Um, and uh, thankfully, that's what I do. So I'm, I am doing all right. Um, but I will say, for those of us who are doing all right, are still making a living, making money, we're safe with our families. I do think we have an obligation right now uh, to support those who are in trouble, whether that's financially or in trouble because there's a government that is attacking them and not treating them equally, and they need to have their voice lifted. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm fortunate, but I um, am doing my best not to take that for granted. That's great. I feel like, yeah, it's a real, there's a real Sullivan's Travels aspect to what you could do. Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure, I love, yeah, I love that movie. But yeah, it's, pe- people need the stories and need escape. And I think that that um, ties in very much to what you yeah. were saying. Um, have you been able to, um, with everything else that you're doing, escape into any good books yourself? You know, I, I don't know if I ever, I, I I don't know when the day will come where I'll, I'll be able to read as escape. I wish. I mean, I read. I have a huge stack of books, but they. I, I'll admit they're all related to things that I'm working on right now. Um, I, I I would say that I've gone back and read again Lost Prophet, which is um, uh, a biography of Bayard Rustin, um, and because I've been working on that, but I also thought it was important to read it again, given everything that's going on right now, to make sure I didn't miss anything from the past that's a key to the future. Because I do, I believe, memoir, biography, all of it, is useless if it's just nostalgia. Um, memoir and biography had best somehow help fix the future. And so I just wanted to look back and see if there was any 
little keys, any clues that I missed um, before I finished that script up. Um, and uh, and then, uh, you know, reading a book uh, I, called Leaving the Saints, which I actually read back when I was doing Big Love a long time ago. Um, but because I'm working on Under the Banner of Heaven, a new TV show at FX, I thought it was a good, a good refresher. And then in her story of leaving the Mormon church, it reminds me so much of my mother and my own. And, 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 and again, looking for the clues, looking for the things that I don't want to miss that could be helpful for people living right now. Well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me about all that stuff. I sort of love the idea of leaving on that. We can all go out there and look for, look right. for, uh, look for our clues um, and hopefully find some and do something, like you said. Yeah, find the purpose in the past and push it into the future. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.